As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. My name's Dan Moylan. Hello. From The Athletic, Phil Hay. Hello. And The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. For a limited time, you can read The Athletic, get it for just a pound a week at the moment, if you want to read what Phil's been writing about, which includes... We are writing this week about the debacle in 2015 when Chilino tried to shut uh, Derby out of Ellen Road, or tried to shut Sky out of Ellen Road for that um, televised game. We've also been writing a little bit about Hernandez, um, and we've got Bielsa's 100th league game coming up this weekend. All that on The Athletic. Head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up for that. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod get signed up for just a quid a week first time we've spoken since leicester and i hate it when leeds lose because it always puts me in a slight state of anxiety for the the week that follows until leeds play again it's horrible it didn't it didn't go particularly well did it at ellen road no when we we spoke in the pre-match podcast we were all being relatively optimistic but caveating everything with the possibility that leeds might get their ass handed to them which they did in terms of the scoreline I don't know whether 4-1 was fair, but equally I don't know whether it was particularly unfair either. I think minus the late penalty, it would probably have been about right. And it was a difficult evening in a lot of respects. It was difficult because, again, there were issues with the squad and Rodrigo missing because of um, his, his positive COVID test. Um, Rafina injured as well, so the, the bench heavily limited. But more to the point, we sat in the press box for about an hour and a half, two hours beforehand and watched the rain lash and lash and lash um, to the point where... The pitch was carrying a, a lot of surface water and more than, than you used to see. And it, it's quite an old drainage system at Ellen Road. The pitch is old and, and it will, with the plan is to replace it next summer. It would have been done this summer had it not been for COVID and, and the shutdown. But it is durable and, and we always have the statistic that they haven't had a postponement for the weather at Ellen Road um, for about 25, 26 years now. But it wasn't an excuse, but it was definitely a factor. And it, it was a factor because Leeds didn't play it particularly well and, and weren't particularly clever in the first half about the conditions, it, it did compromise the performance and they, they made mistakes because of it, which I think, given the time again, they probably wouldn't make. But um, a lot to admire, I thought, about Leicester, about their, their tactics and particularly their best players, especially Jamie Vardy up front, who who looks every bit a 20-goal-a-season striker, looks like he, he will score 20 goals a season for the rest of time. And in the end, I, I well, there's certainly no complaint from Bielsa with the, with the result and, and I didn't have any complaint either. In terms of the conditions then, you mean like because there was that surface water, it made it was a lot more zippy because you saw what Cock did early doors when they got in just after Bamford had missed that chance to make it 
1-0, just misjudging balls, stuff like that. It was noticeably slowing uh, the ball up and, and you found in the second half that the rain had stopped and, and the water had started to drain so the pitch became a bit more playable and, and um, a bit lighter to, to pass the ball around on. I mean, there, there were a couple of instances in the first half and there's one there was one involving Cleek that stands out in particular which was a, a 30-40 yard pass along halfway which in perfect conditions would have been fine and it's the way Leeds like to play. They like to switch possession from side to side and, and to stretch the opposition. But because of the surface water, it was almost inevitable that that was going to hold up and, and it did hold up on halfway. Leicester were able to step in and, and to counter. And it was just a little bit of naivety, I think, the back pass from Cox straight to Vardy, who, again, was just savvy enough to set up the early goal for Harvey Barnes, really did set the tone. And, and it kind of took until the second half for, for Leeds to get properly to grips with the state of the pitch and how heavy it was because those are not conditions that they're ever going to thrive and it's not what they want when you speak to the ground staff at Ellen Road they always say that Bielsa wants the pitch to be short he wants it to be fast and he wants it to be wet in the sense of soaked by sprinklers beforehand but he doesn't want it to be absolutely sodden which it was for you know the best part of, of 45 minutes so as I say it, it's not an excuse because Leeds could have been could have been sharper in, in how they approached it and, and what they did but it was definitely a factor in, in influencing the game Devil's advocate would say it was the same pitch for both teams. So, what's your excuse? It, it was. Um, the the difference was that Leicester set up for that pitch, so they were more cautious than Leeds. They sat heavily in the way that that Wolves did. They didn't take much in the way of risks in their own half, and they they basically played in a way which invited Leeds to come onto them, but then took advantage of the pace up front. And it's always interesting watching Vardy because he's he's into his thirties now, but he doesn't seem to be aging at all. And you watch him and you wonder how it was that it was such a struggle for him to get games for England. He would be in the squad, he would go away, but he would hardly play. And a little bit like Carragher and others before him seemed to get to the point where he thought he'd, he'd rather spend time at home with his kids than be a bit of a cheerleader or a token presence away on, on international duty. But I mean, the, the way the way he reads the game, the way he moves, he's, he's quite old-fashioned in some of his play, but he, he's excellent at dropping deep. And the chance that he missed in the second half that he put wide, that he should have scored. If, if you look at his movement before that, it's perfectly timed in the way that he looks for the, the pass through um, in behind the defence, the way that he stalls his runs so that he doesn't stray offside, but the direction he takes so that he's so difficult to track. I think, given that Bielsa has had a lot of questions recently about Bamford for England, and I guess justifiably so, or, or at least with, with some merit on the basis of how Bamford's played, you look at Vardy as somebody who was in the England squad but was struggling to get a game, and you realise that the sort of level of, of centre-forward you need to be to be in the mix like that. So essentially, Leicester played the conditions. Rogers got his tactics spot on. They worked for him. They didn't work for Bielsa and, and Leicester deserved the win. Pitch aside, what do you think went wrong in that first half? Because it felt like the basics of passes just not connecting and stuff. It felt like that side of the game wasn't coming off. Was it just too many players playing half out of position in midfield? Possibly, but I think that I think there were there were definite errors, definite errors with passing, definite errors errors with positioning as well, which again is probably in part down to the conditions because Leeds do like to take chances with the way they pass. They like to pass in, in tight areas, really slick and, and quick interplay, which becomes far more difficult when the weather is as it is. And and I wouldn't suggest that they should have changed the tactics from what they normally do. I think they just needed to limit the risks that they were taking with 30, 40 yard balls. I mean, we, when we spoke to Bielsa afterwards, he said straight up, that was my mistake in the first half. I, I got the structure of the team wrong. Um, I take the blame, which he, he often tends to do when Leeds lose. And we did try to say to him, in what sense, you know, what exactly had you done and, and what, did, what did you do or which players did you pick that with hindsight you, you wish you hadn't? And he wouldn't go into it in, in great detail apart from to say 
you could see what the changes were in, in the second half. But in the second half, they were 2-0 down. They were playing with what at times looked like a bit of a front five. And it was, even by Bielsa's standards, it was very all-out attack. It was very gung-ho. And it makes you wonder whether he wishes he'd played Stroik um, in the Phillips role, whether he wishes he'd played Cleek for the forward in the, the traditional eight role. Because between them, there would have been a lot more strength and a lot more presence, I think, in the midfield. And, and whereas Shackleton had been able to take advantage of Villa pressing forward and, and Villa leaving gaps in, in their midfield. It just wasn't the same game on Monday night and and he wasn't able to shine at all and, and was gone by half-time. It feels to me a little bit like the Villa game kind of lulled us into a false sense of security about no Phillips because we played so well in that game and we won so comfortably that we were there was a, a, a little bit of arrogance almost to say, oh, well, maybe we don't need him. Maybe we can just play Shackleton and we can reshuffle things and the system can overcome at missing players. But then I think the other day we we probably did miss him. It suggested that Bielsa hoped that the game against Leicester was going to take the same sort of form and the same shape as the game did at Villa Park. But in the end, it was more like Wolves, um, far more like that match um, with, with Leicester sitting deep and, and happy to to make it compact. And and it was only when Paveda came on in the second half and, and Leeds were more aggressive than they had been that the movement changed up front. The movement was far more difficult for Leicester to read and, and to cope with and, and that in, in turn started to stretch them, started to cause them problems, started to make them a little bit tense. And and there was definitely a period in the game where you felt that Leeds might take something from it, particularly where Hernandez struck the bar. But as soon as Vardy stuck in the third, you knew it was game over. And you knew that in the, the closing period, the likelihood was that if there were going to be further goals, they were going to come at, at Melier's end. I always felt when that shot hit the bar by Hernandez, I, that's the moment when it got away from me. You know, when you just know it's not your night. I just kind of had that, that feeling about the whole thing. Yeah, we spoke about this one on the, the Square Ball pod, actually. Michael and I, along with Moscow, saying, yeah, Shackleton earned his shot, but we lost click from that advanced position and maybe strike with hindsight would have been a better choice at, at defensive midfielder. And one of those, it's kind of one of those Bielserisms, isn't it, where you break two positions to to fix one uh, by moving players around within the system. But, you know, he's Marcelo Bielsa and I'm just an idiot talking about football and he knows a lot more than me. Do you, is, is that a fair criticism that... We can't really afford to to move too many players out of position, and maybe we should be putting the square pegs into square holes. I think it depends on the the game in question, and and Shackleton was actually the right substitute at the right time. I I said on Twitter during the game I could actually see him thriving at Villa Park because of how open it was, and you know a big part of his game is that these quick aggressive runs forward that that he makes and and that put puts a defence on on the back foot. I mean, in, in Bielsa's defence, and, and I do think it, it wasn't right on, on Monday, but he is without an awful lot of players. He, he's lost Phillips, um, he's lost Rodrigo, he's lost Rafina. So even the, the kind of fallback options on the bench, like Rafina on to, to cause more havoc, wasn't there for him to, to go at. I, I think the proof of the pudding will probably be in the team he picks away at Palace this weekend because Palace aren't going to be overly ambitious. They aren't going to take ridiculous risks. They'll, I would imagine, like the look of the way that counter-attacking worked for Leicester and Wolves and given that they've got Zahan and others with a, a bit of pace might play in the same way. So given that, your expectation would be that it would be strike and it would be clicked back into the number eight role and then obviously there's a decision to make with Hernandez at 10 as well. But I, I almost feel that Leeds can probably afford Hernandez more in that position when they have Cleek to the left of him and strike behind because there's just a bit more protection. We'll find out exactly what the lineup's going to be if Bielsa is... Well, he's been a bit more cagey recently, but we'll be... Sp- he, he has. You're, you're speaking to him, aren't you, shortly with, with the uh, the press conference. We're recording this in two halves, either side of it. Yeah, he has. You never know with him, though. There are times where he does just set out his, his lineup. There are times when he's a little bit more guarded, although he tends to be open rather than guarded more often than not. 
What good things were there then from a Leeds United point of view? I mean, well, I'll tell you what, we'll come on to that in a second. Let's get the bad stuff out of the way first. What do we think we learned from this then? What what was the big lesson? Was it about finishing? Because we saw Bamford miss that chance, guilt-edged chance early doors, and it was really, really costly in the end. It was, although it was only costly because of such a bad error from Cock at the, the other end of the field. And, you know, Bamford should have scored that, but equally that, that goal for Harvey Barnes shouldn't have developed in the way that it did early on. I think what this has told us and what Wills has told us as well is that the games that were difficult in the championship, the games where, where where teams packed in, tried to have compact lines so that Leeds couldn't get the run on them, couldn't get much space to, to play out wide, are going to be the games where it's difficult in the Premier League. It's going to be it's going to be harder for Premier League teams to play in that way constantly because Leeds are newly promoted. A side like Leicester, if we were down at, at the King Power, you would assume that they would want to show a bit more ambition in their play and, and everything else. Although I think that changes slightly in the absence of crowds because you don't feel the same the same pressure from your crowd to, to play in a certain way or, or to take the game on. But when when Leeds come up against the Wolves or come up against the Leicester, that is when they're going to they're gonna find the same issues that they had constantly in the Championship when teams tried to, to sit deep. And, and more often than not, they were able to work it out in the Championship, but it's slightly different when you get to this level and you've got Jimenez up front for Wolves, you've got Vardy up front for, for Leicester, you are you are more at risk. Yeah, it's a better attacking lineup you're facing, isn't it? Quite clearly, you're going to get punished on, on more occasions than not. Yeah, and, and I think as well, it shows that, that Bielsa needs to have, in the main, the bulk of his squad available. I, I was talking up the cost of the players who were missing. So Llorente on Monday and Rodrigo and, and Rafina. It's sixty three million quid that Leeds have spent on those three, and they're all very high quality players and, and would make a difference. And it's not that um, Llorente or Rafina would have started on Monday night, but Rodrigo would have done, and I think Rafina would have come off the bench uh, at some stage. So it did weaken his hand, and Leeds want you know anything like full strength at that point. I think it's more it's more a lesson about as Wolves was a lesson about what they're going to have to do when they get into game like that because when it comes to fighting fire with fire like they did against Villa and they have against other sides it's not so much of a problem Is that the good takeaway then the positives is that we've we've learned it's a lesson It is I mean I guess you've got to be philosophical in accepting that there will be defeats in this league and Leicester it's a while now since Leicester won the title but they are consistently one of the best sides in, in the division and I think they'll have a good chance of top six this season I think that they're solid enough for that and they do have players like Vardy they've got players like Thielmans who I thought was really impressive in the centre of midfield and again expensive quality footballer that the like of which he's going to come up against fairly regularly the main positive for me and I was I was trying to reflect this in the piece after the game is that it's 10 points from 7 and, and when you look at the way that teams at the bottom of the division are stuck on the starting line and, and finding it difficult to get going, finding it difficult to get wins on the board. It's a significant leap ahead of them. And we're now into a period where I think the prospect of crowds returning any time this season is looking shaky, to say the least. Leeds are sitting on money you know, from season tickets, 23,000 of them, which at this rate they're going to have to refund or they're going to have to re, you know roll over to next season. They've spent a lot in the, the transfer market or, or at least committed a lot to the transfer market. And they're losing all the streams of revenue that come from standard match days. So it's imperative that they stay up this season. You know, that it, it was that thing on Monday night where the table was sat in such a way that Leeds could have gone third. And and I think that is kind of kind of nibbling at people thinking, what could actually happen this season? What what could we do? But the bottom line is that they cannot afford to get into trouble. They cannot afford to go down. And I think when you come out of seven games with 10 points, having played Liverpool and City and Wolves and, and Leicester, you should be pretty happy with that. A word then on Pablo Hernandez, who you've done a piece on. And his, should we call it a strop when he got taken off? He wasn't happy, was he? No, he wasn't. 
I mean, I, I never really have too much of a problem with players kicking water bottles. I, I almost feel like that's what they were intended for, aside from drinking, really. They're at foot level, aren't they? And if anything's going get to get a size nine through it, it's going to be that. I think with hindsight, you'll regret and probably should regret throwing the black armband into the, the stands when he came off. I mean, there's, there's no great way of, of painting that. We, we went to interview him, and, and do you know what he's like? He's a really placid likeable guy who doesn't seem to have a temperance bone in his body but you do see it from time to time and it got me thinking about the Barnsley game last season where you know that was the kind of crucial tipping point for Leeds that was the final tipping point at which it was a case of saying to West Brom and Brentford you now have absolutely no margin for error in the games that are left and and essentially you, you felt like you know it, it had to be happening and he was he been substituted on at half time had Hernandez and um, he was substituted off uh, in, in injury time right at the end of the game and that game was a kind of baffling mess it was the completely confused the total opposite of what you used to seeing with Bielsa and a lot of the players you could sense the frustration Ailings in particular in the first half and when Hernandez came off he kicked a water bottle again he, he went down the tunnel and he kind of got lost because of the bigger picture and the fact that people were focusing on different things but it felt odd to see that sort of reaction on a day when essentially Leeds had done what they needed to do and when you could go away from that game saying, look, who really cares what the performance was like? Genuinely, you know, on that day, it, it didn't matter at all. But I get the sense with him that he's he's 35 now and I guess once you get to that point and you realise that you're, you're in your kind of final days as a player, I mean, when his contract at Leeds ends, he'll be, he'll be 37. Every appearance and, and every game counts and every performance counts and... I, I don't know whether he was frustrated with Bielsa on Monday night, but I suspect it's more, like like with Barnsley, it's more the frustration that it hasn't gone well and, and there aren't going to be an endless number of opportunities for him anymore. You know, with, with seven games into the season, he's played only just over a, a game and a half of that. And, you know, when, when we interviewed him, he said to us, the, the day when I find that everybody's faster than me or everybody thinks quicker than me or, or everybody's more talented than me, you know, I'll, I'll go and he, and he was kind of saying two things, which was firstly, when the time's right, he'll accept that the time's right. But I think more to the point that the time isn't right now. He still feels like he's he's got plenty about him, and I just think he'll fi- he'll find it difficult in circumstances like that to accept the way the game's going because he he will want to play as well as he can for as as long as he can, and and he hasn't got a huge amount of time left. Yeah, when we did speak to him, when we interviewed him at, at Thorpe Arch, you did get the the sense that he's a really nice placid guy but also he's got that kind of that intensity it's it's the thing that his eyes betray you know he's got that focus he wants to win he wants to play he wants to affect games I mean do you from a fan's point of view Michael take any beef whatsoever with the fact that he had a, a very mild strop and we've seen so much worse before who cares yeah I'm not bothered to be perfectly honest I think he's earned the right to have a strop as well and yeah. I get I get the feeling as Phil maybe alluded to there I'm not sure it's necessarily an annoyance with being substituted it's an annoyance at the way that everything has gone it's a it's a complete picture that he's that he's annoyed with as opposed to when we've seen before occasionally players get get dropped or substituted off and they're annoyed very clearly at the manager I I would be very surprised if that's the case with him he seems quite he seems to have completely bought into everything Bielsa has done so far and I'd, I'd be amazed if this is him all of a sudden taking a stand against him No I think I think that's definitely right and Hernandez is so far in credit that you can get away with that in in that position it's not as if you're talking about a player who hasn't performed and hasn't delivered and is, is stropping away and, and you're left thinking, well, if you were playing better or if you're contributing more, and I don't mean in isolation, um, I mean you know, over the, the piece that he's been here, then then perhaps you'd be entitled to do that. I, I think the important thing with Hernandez is probably not to judge him too quickly in this season, you know, not to judge whether or not he's up to, to Premier League standard because 
he is at his best when he gets into flow, when he gets into rhythm, when he's he's got games behind him and it's all coming naturally. And it's been pretty stop start from mm. this season. And I mean, I, I I was looking back after the game and and seeing that he he's only gone through ninety minutes once since the lockdown started in March, and that was at Derby, which you know Leeds had won the title by that point. Derby had nothing riding on the game; it was all it was a very good performance down there. But it was a low key occasion aside from the the celebrations at the end. And that's a long period to go through without feeling like you, you're really heavily involved or you're, you know, you're a, a sort of main player in the team. And I'm sure that even at 35, he, he would want to be a main player. He'd, he'd want to be starting. And I think that's what the, the reaction on, you know, it's starting and playing well. And, and I think that's what the reaction on Monday told us. I mean, you mentioned Derby there. I've just looked at the championship table, played 10 games. Derby are 23rd on six points, so it could be worse. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine a club who were more disappointed with the news that, that Wednesday's points deduction was getting trimmed from 12 points to sixth. I mean, that's thrown them right back into the into the mix at the bottom and it's it's dragged Derby closer to the, the bottom as well. And and it's it is funny when you think that two years ago, or you know, back at the end of Bielsa's first season, it was Derby who went away from Ellen Road with the playoff final tickets in, in the boot of their cars and, and who, you know, had the chance to get into the Premier League and, and suddenly year or so down the line, you've got Leeds who are sitting comfortably mid-table in the Premier League and you've got Derby in 23rd in the Championship, which tells you a story about taking your chances when it comes. Fine margins, eh? Fine margins. Bit of a left turn now then and, and not something we want to be talking about, but we should do as well, particularly because um, you've got your Hearts connections as well as being a Leeds fan, Phil. I know you like Hearts, so you keep tabs on them Every as now well. and again, yeah, yes. Yeah. Marius Jalukas uh, passed away. Yeah, which was a, a real shock. I mean, I must confess that I didn't realise he was ill and it turns out that he's been suffering from uh, motor neurone disease and I think a lot of people in Leeds will have followed what's happened to Rob Burrow and seen that not just the impact that it has, but the speed of the impact, you know, the, the speed of deterioration. Um, it, it's genuinely horrible, horrible disease. I mean, Zaliukas was at a very mixed time at Leeds and, and we, a while back, were talking about the 6-0 at Hillsborough um, and, and his famous back heel in that it, it it started okay for him, he, he looked steady for a while, and it, it went downhill pretty quickly. But I obviously have the the Hearts connection, and he you know he was one of a number of of Lithuanians who came in after um, Vladimir Romanov bought the club, and and they were a mixed bag. Some of them were very talented, some of them looked like they had no business being at the club. And in a period where it was actually quite a challenge for players to to be popular at Hearts because it wasn't going particularly well, and Romanov was such a loose cannon. Zaliukas, after a bit of a sort of indifferent start, became a, a really integral part of that team. And, you know, he was he was tailor-made for Scottish football, I felt. He was very hard, big centre-back. But he could play as well. He, he was a, a ball player and, and he was good for hearts at, at, at that level. And, I mean, he, he ultimately was the, the captain who lifted the Scottish Cup in, in 2012 when hearts beat Hibs at, at Hamden, which for us goes down as the biggest derby of all time and will probably be the biggest derby of all time and will certainly be the biggest win in the club's history regardless of of what happens at any stage just because of what it meant because of the pressure on it and the fact that it was it was an an all Edinburgh Edinburgh game so really really sad to hear that and at at 36 again you, you left a little bit like Rob Burrow almost in a bit of disbelief that it's happened and I'm old enough to remember Don Revy being brought out onto the Ellen Road pitch you know, in a, in a wheelchair, also suffering from motor neurone disease. And that was a particularly sad and poignant occasion and, and not one that I fully understood, I think, at the time. But looking back and the legacy and you see the deterioration that that disease involves and it's horrible. Well, I think that's why the, what the borough's done is, has been so important because people have actually started to understand the impact that it has. There's an old Scottish rugby player, Doddy Weir, um, up north, who I think suffers from, from the same problem. And again, 
it seems to have deteriorated at a much slower rate than Borough, but you know, it eventually will lose his faculties and and his ability to do things in in the same way. And you know, likewise with Taliukas, it it does open your eyes to it. And it and there is a there is a GoFundMe page that's been started for Taliukas. If anybody wants to to donate money, it's going to go to MND Research, and you you find it find it online. But you're right. I mean, I think. Back in Reeves' day, nobody really understood what it was or the 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 impact it could have or the speed of the the impact. But it certainly changes everybody's perspective seeing things like this. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after fifteen seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Every now and then we like to pitch some questions at Phil from you. 07899555 is our WhatsApp number. We like a voice memo so we can play you out on the show. Um, or you can go to the squareball.net forward slash WhatsApp and that will redirect you in your phone browser and put you straight into the app, fill out the number, then all you need to do is record a message and send it through and we can put it to fill. Again, thank you to everybody who's sent them through this time. We'll get through a selection now and we'll do it again in a few weeks and um, and pick Phil's brains. First one today then, we'll get this one on from Adam. Hi guys, I recently read an interview with Kelvin Phillips and he was speaking about Leif Davis and what a um, great prospect he could be and how he could potentially be one of our best centre-backs, left-backs and left midfielders. He also said some comments about um, Davis saying if he just switched on a little bit and settled down. I was wondering um, if Phil could try and infer what he meant um, by Kelvin's comments and how does Leif come across in the training ground and and what do uh, the hierarchy think of him? Thanks. Yeah, so this was from a, uh, another podcast that Phillips is on. And um, just to give the full quote so people know know what Adam is talking about, he said, you'll, you'll get to see what's good about Davis in future because he's that good a player. Um, Phillips just went on to say, if he settled down a little bit and just screwed his head on a little bit, um, he'd be up there with the best left-backs, left midfielders, centre-halves that we've got. He's very well thought of as Davis, and, and he has been since he came. And of the, the 23s, he's, he's really been as involved as most under Bielsa and, and has quite often been the go-to player when Bielsa's needed a left-back and you saw that with Barry Douglas going to, to Blackburn part of the reason for that move was because Davis was ahead of him and, and was kind of third choice or at least in the mix of three with, with Dallas and Alioski um, on the left-hand side but you always find with under-23s and, and youth team players that it's it's ups and downs with them ups and downs in terms of the form ups and downs in, in terms of the way they apply themselves with, with very few exceptions I mean before the Liverpool game at the start of the season I wrote about James Milner um, and his time at Leeds and, and spoke to various people who'd played with him or, or worked with him, um, including Stuart Gray, who's, who's Eddie Gray's son. And Stuart was saying, you know, when he was in that bridging period between the, the um, under-18s or the reserve team as it was back then and the first team, you would have scenarios in, in pre-season where you'd be doing the usual running routines and you'd have senior first team players who would say to the younger kids, look, run at our pace, don't go out in front, don't embarrass us, you know, we'll set the pace, you stick with it. And most of the, the younger lads would, would go with that and, and would do what they were told. But Milner was the complete opposite. And when I spoke to Eddie about him, Eddie said he was a player who would, who would get told, you know, at 17, 18, 
don't be going out in front and, and don't be humiliating the, the older lads behind you. But he would ignore that and he would just do it anyway. And Eddie would say to him, keep doing that. You know, I, I don't want to see you dropping back because you're trying to keep in with these younger, yeah, these older guys. You know, do what you want to do and, and be committed. But I think Milner is quite a rare example like that. It's not that academy players generally aren't really devoted or, or don't put the effort in. I just think he was singular in the, this kind of dead set attitude that, that he was going to make it and he was going to be the best he can be. With with a lot of other youngsters, you find that they'll have periods where it's going well and, and like Philip says, that the heads are screwed on perfectly. You'll have other periods where it's not quite the same. And I've heard people say that about Jordan Stevens, for example, and, and Ryan Edmondson as well. Very, very good players who, who kind of go through peaks and peaks and troughs. Um, but I think the bottom line, I would infer from Philip's comments that that, that is what he's getting at. But the, the bottom line is that at Leeds, they think an awful lot of Davis and they think that he's a bit of a steal um, for what they signed him or what they paid to, to sign him from Morecambe. Let's move on to a question from Leon. And just before we play that, just a, a pointer that Rodrigo de Paul scored for Udinese. They're struggling. Boom. Yeah, at the bottom end of, uh, of Syria. Uh, uh, Leon's got a question on that. Hi, Phil. Happy 40th birthday. Welcome to the club. The first question I've got is, do you think Leeds will dip into the January transfer market to secure a quality midfielder to add to the first team picture, given the collapse of the Cousins deal and the injuries that have occurred in that midfield, that key midfield area? Uh, and my second question is, who's impressed you the most in the Leeds United team this season? And the obvious answer would be Bamford, but just like to get your uh, your view on that. Thanks very much. Thank you, Leon. I know I don't look it, but I turned 40 last week. Um, that is, is very, very kind of you. January is a, a strange window from Leeds' point of view. The, the feeling in the club and in the recruitment department is generally that they'd like to do as little business as they can in January. Firstly, because you don't tend to get huge amounts of value at that time. You, you tend to have to overpay. And secondly, you know, to use Augustine as an example, it can be very difficult to find players who can come in and make any immediate impression under Bielsa because of the way in which he expects them to, or the levels he expects them to reach when it comes to fitness and conditioning and coaching and everything else. They feel like it's a, it's almost a bit of a waste of time, the January window. So they clearly could do with another midfielder, although if, if we got to a point where Adam Forshaw was fit, there'd be another option in there. But it it's not a secret that they went for Cuisance in the summer window. It will depend in January on, on Bielsa more than anything. I think if he gets to that point and he feels like he needs a midfielder, then they wouldn't say no to him. You know, they, they would try and make something happen. They would look, you know, they would look at options and, and see what they could do. I, I think if he isn't particularly bothered, then the feeling at the club is that they would be quite happy to go through January without doing anything. They they feel that the business they've done in this summer gone has, has set up the squad for the next couple of seasons. And while it might be a little bit light in that area, they, they generally feel that they're well covered in, in most positions across the pitch. So I wouldn't expect a particularly dramatic January. I think if, if they can get by without doing anything, then, then they probably will. But as I say, if, if you get to January and you find that Bielsa needs a midfielder or wants a midfielder, then they are not going to sit and say, no, sorry, you can't have one. Um, in terms of who's impressed me most so far, I would go for Clake, I think. I, I, I know he had a poor game against Leicester, but he had a poor game out of position. But I think a, across... The other six games, as good as Bamford has been and some of his finishing has been, I, I just see Cleek getting better and better and constantly looking more impressive. At one and a half million quid, he looks like barking of the century, doesn't he? There's this, I was looking back at a thread on uh, Wacko, uh, one of the Leeds forums the other day, and it's a, it's a very long thread about him. And if you go back far enough, there's debate of whether or not he's good enough for the championship on there and whether or not he was good enough for, to have signed for us in the first place. So yes, he was, was the summary of that. But um, I must admit, I've been pleasantly surprised by how well he's done. 
Yeah, I, I'm not. I, I'm not surprised by how well he's done. I, I thought he would. I thought he would cope fine at this level because he. I, one of the things Leeds seem to have managed to do, and you know, there's a bit of luck involved in this, but equally, it does depend on the, the quality of your recruitment. Is to find players who seem to improve every time they're, they're asked to step up a level. They're kind of like they're kind of like what I used to see with with Josh Warrington when he was boxing. Every time he, he moved up a level, you'd think, mm, not sure about this. You know, how, how's he going to cope? And every time he would improve, he would get better, and he would win. And it feels a bit like that with some of these players constantly. You know, Bielsa comes in and they're all able to hit his standards. Leeds get promoted and, and a lot of them are able to look good enough for the Premier League or in cliques, in the case of him, better than, than just being being up to it. And yeah, one and a half million pounds, great value. And on the first team then, this is a tough one from Benny and I'll definitely defer to you on this one, Phil. Hi, Phil. If you were Marcelo Bielsa and had all of the current players available, what would your starting eleven be? Okay, so we'll go four one four one because that's what Bielsa generally tends to play. Back four, right to left, I would go Ailing, Koch, Cooper, uh, and Dallas with Calvin Phillips in front of them as as the one. And then at the moment, I would play Costa on the right. Um, I would play Rodrigo and Clake in the middle. I would stick with Harrison on the left hand side, and I would play Bamford up front. But I think there's going to come a point at which you will be looking to get Rafina into that team as well. And the, the elephant in that particular room is no Pablo, who we've already spoken about on this show and uh, I dare say we'll speak about again. You you would keep him from the bench for now? Yeah, I mean, at the start of the season, it seemed to me that him potentially playing on the right with Rodrigo inside him and, and Cleek as well could work nicely. But I think at the moment, you, you certainly feels as if Costa's got into this season more than Hernandez has. And that's in no small part because of the, the injury to Hernandez that, that obviously kept him out of, of a handful of games. I, I do think Hernandez is going to have a part to play in this season. And, and I mean, they need him this weekend in the absence of Rodrigo down at Palace. You know, I, I suspect Hernandez will either start or, or will feature quite heavily. And they still need those moments of magic from him, that bit of craft that isn't always apparent from other players on the pitch. But for now, yeah, I think I'd, I'd be leaning towards Costa. A question now then from Mark regarding Pablo. Hi Phil, I'm just wondering if you know if Pablo has got any ambition to go into coaching and do you think Bielsa might keep him on as maybe a number two or something like that? Cheers. Good question because he's coming round to that point. Um, I asked him about this um, a couple of years ago when he after he won his, his first Player of the, the Year award and he seemed to be in two minds. I think he's open to the idea, but without being dead set on it. So whereas some players get to the end of their careers and are, are absolutely certain that they want to be coaches or managers and want to get into that side side of things, I think he's he's a little bit undecided or, or is you know more easygoing in the sense that he'll take it as it comes. He talked about the idea of getting into youth coaching first, so potentially coaching in an academy. To, I think more than anything to see if he was good at it, to see if he enjoyed it, if if it was for him. And I, I would imagine that on that basis, that the thought of actual full-blown management is probably an awful lot further down the line for him. But with, with his brain, you'd almost be disappointed if he didn't because he's got a hell of a lot to pass on. It does feel like he's still got miles in the tank yet, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, going back to that interview that we did with him, it doesn't sound like a player is on the wind down by any stretch of the imagination. I, th- I think he does, um, but it doesn't need to be all about him anymore. And that, that I think, is one of the things that Bielsa has done very successfully, is to move on from Hernandez without leaving him behind. You know, clearly he was crucial at the back end of last season. And, and what he did in, in that period of, of eight games, he sort of felt that only he amongst the players at Leeds could have done that in, in the way that he did. But they signed Rodrigo, who I think is, has looked really good and, and increasingly good as he's played. I think 
they're open to or they realise that Hernandez is 35 that, that it's not going to last forever this and they have over two years two and a bit years would be able to become much more of a complete unit as opposed to the position they were in with Christensen and, and um, Heckenbottom and to some extent with Monk as well where when it wasn't going well you were pretty much looking to Hernandez and saying well that's where it's got to come from otherwise it's it's just not going to happen they're, they're a very different team now and, and I think you know everybody's philosophical about the position Hernandez is in and, and how much longer he's he's going to go for. But I certainly see him as a as a really valuable part of the squad still. There's an interesting parallel with Berardi who's been given a, a short-term contract. And again, we've spoken about this before, Michael, that he's kind of almost there as, as a, just a presence at the training ground. And you forget that sometimes that maybe actually the cohesion of the squad as a whole benefits from having these senior players in there to, to put an arm around some of the younger lads. It was interesting to hear Barry Douglas saying that Leeds weren't forcing him out by any stretch. He was he was welcome there and was happy to. They were happy for him to stay and compete for a place. But he was the one who ultimately decided. You know, he wanted to he wanted to get some football. I think with with Pablo and and Berardi to an extent, they they clearly have had a lot of influence around the place. When players have left, they've said. You know, Pontus has praised um, Berardi, saying he was like his big brother, and you get the feeling he has that influence over quite a few of them. So it's. I think the thing with Pablo staying on, it'd be interesting to see if Bielsa would welcome someone into his coaching staff because I know he I know he had Carl Brown in there but he was kind of he was already here when he arrived but generally speaking he likes to take his own people everywhere doesn't he yeah I think Colburn's a good example of the fact that if he sees somebody he likes he will embrace them but Hernandez would probably think himself that it would make more sense for him to drop in at, at a youth team level rather than expect to, to pile straight into what is a you know a very kind of strict and, and hardened group of assistants around about um, Bielsa you know Bielsa likes likes to know what he's got in that sense. He, he likes to know what he's going to get out of the people who are around him. I, I could imagine him being very keen to keep Hernandez on in some capacity. I think the, the difficulty for Hernandez, and, and I suspect this is true of Berardi as well, is that it's nice being a presence at the training ground. It's nice being seen as a, an influence off the pitch, but it's not always that fulfilling. You know, you, you do need the football to go with it and David Prutton would not want me to compare him to Hernandez or anybody else particularly but he always talks about the time when it ran out for him at Leeds and, and he'd become a bit part player who was struggling to to get into the um, into the squad and he had a, a point at which the, the stadium announcer said to him why don't we get you on the pitch at half time come on the pitch we'll ask you a few questions we'll have a bit of a laugh and, and this that and the other and Prutton's attitude was I've basically become a cheerleader here People value my presence and they like me and everything else, and they talk about me being a positive influence in the dressing room. But I'm not playing, you know. I'm not. I'm not getting games. And you know, his words were: "Has it really reached this stage? Has it reached the stage where you want me to come out and entertain the crowd at, at half time?" And the answer was, "Yes, it has." So in the end, he left and and he went down to Colchester. And that's not how it's going to go with Hernandez this season. But I think for both him and and Berardi, yes, it's great to be there. Yes, it's great for people to lean on them and, and they'll they'll like the fact that, that they're seen in that way but it, they will want to play games and, and it will be harder for Berardi this season because I don't think there's much chance that he will. And you know at the end of the 10 o'clock news there's always the and finally yes. story just to lighten things up. Well this is our and finally and it comes from Tom. Hey Phil, always been really curious to know what Bielsa's drinking at the start of each match. Is it a coffee, a Bovril, hot toddy? Just wondered if you had any uh, insight into that. It ain't Bovril and it's not a hot toddy either because I don't think he's a big drinker when it comes to alcohol. He, he likes the odd bit of red wine. Um, he will occasionally 
share a pint apparently with some of his assistants, split a pint into two glasses. I don't think it's um I don't think it's a, a big part of his life. He he's a big coffee drinker is Bielsa um and he likes um matter tea as well as as a lot of players do. I know somebody who brought some home for him when they went to Argentina and got a nice phone call from him to to say Thank you. But I remember him saying a while back as well that he'd started to get into English tea. He'd started to to get a bit of a taste for that. So I can't honestly say because I don't make it for him. I would suspect coffee, but perhaps the odd Yorkshire tea in there too. I'm disappointed you don't make it for him. I wouldn't like to make it for him. You could imagine bringing it out and him saying, too weak, too strong, do it again. It's not like you with your half a bottle of whiskey on the gantry before. No, that's right. Half (laughs) Half a bottle of Bells, yeah. You can't go wrong. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. And as if by the magic of editing here, back after the Marcelo Bielsa press conference, Phil, part three of the podcast and how was Marcelo today? I mean, I ask you this full in the knowledge that everybody will have read the comments online by now. So uh, the fresh tours anyway, so let's reflect on them. They will have done. He was quite talkative today, actually, when when he got going. And there'll be some quotes that people haven't read online because some of it was embargoed for the Saturday newspapers. And I would suggest that you go and have a read of those those remarks because it was interesting stuff about Hodgson and his um, longevity and also bits on Bielsa's future and how he, he saw it panning out for him so I won't give the game away but there was there was some interesting stuff in there and then a, a very long answer on VAR which kind of strayed into um, thoughts about the world and the universe and the future of the entire game of football which Bielsa is always very strong on and, and very interesting about injury wise or, or fitness wise Rodrigo is obviously missing with COVID he is going to be reevaluated next week uh, he is the only case of COVID at Leeds which is very good news and there are no, no other issues amongst the squad, although Bielsa did fess up in telling us that he once went to the supermarket without a mask and seemed very guilty so about pure. that. He's so pure, Phil, he's so he, pure. He is, and obviously none of us have ever done anything like that or, or breached um, regulations in, in any way whatsoever. But I think he, he seems quite content to me. I, I asked him what he thought of 10 points from seven games and whether he thought it, it was fair reflection, and he says, yeah, I do. I, I think that's probably about right for the way they've played and, and um, the way the, the games have, have panned out. And clearly, he knows that it's going to be a difficult game down at Palace. He, he spoke very highly of Hodgson, actually, and, and said he's, he's got a lot of respect for him. I've been reading quite a lot of criticism of Palace's performance and the general feeling that they are a fairly mundane, stroke dull team to watch under Hodgson. But Bielsa was talking about the front end of their team where they've got Zaha in particular, but uh, you know Townsend as well, um, Batshuayi and, and others. You know They are dangerous. And I think he got into speaking about the fact that you've got Teams like Wolves and Leicester who are coming here sitting deep. That's a tactic they use against Leeds. You've got others like Villa who try to go punch for punch and, and toe-to-toe. 
I think Palace are going to fall into the first category of a side who, who aren't going to be ridiculously ambitious and, and aren't going to open themselves up. So they will need to be, play better than they did on Monday. And Bielsa was in no doubt at all, you know, a, a few days on that they deserve to lose against Leicester and that they didn't play well. Because that's the, the main point here, isn't it? We know that Leeds will do what Leeds will do. We kind of got that one sauce now. It's just how Palace respond to it and how our game plan imposes on theirs. Yeah, we, we spoke about the, the number four position and he didn't say what he was going to do there, whether it would be strike or whether it would be Cleek. But he said it, it was a kind of contradiction that Cleek played better at Villa where it should have been harder to play better because he had players coming at him and because Villa were aggressive and, um, and and very attacking. Played better there than he did against Leicester who were more defensive and, and who should in theory have, have made the game more straightforward for him. I, I almost got the hint from those comments that it, there might be a rethink coming at Selhurst Park and actually given that Palace will probably be more on the Leicester-Wolves end of the spectrum than, say, Liverpool or City or or, or Villas as they were at Villa Park, that it might be a, a day for strike. Um, and, and clearly things to um, clearly things to adjust and, and to work on there. I mean, the table alone suggests that Palace are not as good as some of those other sides like Leicester and, and Wolves. They've got an identical record to us at the minute in the opening um, stretch of games. So do we have something to fear from this game or is it, does it go back to what we were saying actually heading into that Villa game where we just said, okay, we're off the back of a defeat in the form of Wolves before. What we don't want now is this to turn into back-to-back losses and, and go into the international break a little bit more anxious because we haven't got a win on the board for a few weeks. They're definitely not as good as Wolves and Leicester, but they do have the knack palace of throwing in some very good performances um, from time to time. And when it clicks for them, because of the players they, they have, especially up front, it, it can be it can be an ordeal when, when they get going. But I think, a bit like Villa away, I, it, Palace strike me as being tighter than Villa, being a bit bit more organised, certainly less less gung-ho. But it's a, it's a very winnable game. I think what Leeds are going to have to do better in this game than they did against Wolves. I, I think to an extent you can you can take the Leicester game out of the equation because a lot of players are particularly and, and obviously bad nights. The weather was really, really difficult. There were, there were issues with the, the team selection. I think what was obvious against Wolves was the fact that Wolves sat deep, gave Leeds a lot of the ball, gave Leeds a lot of good positional, um, let them play into good positions out wide, but there was so little coming from the opportunities to cross, there was so little precision. And that is the one thing that they'll have to be good at at Palace. When they get out wide and when they get into positions to cross, they've got to pick out Bamford, they've got to pick out players in, in the middle. That's where you would think the goals are going to come from um, if, they, if they're able to get in amongst them down at Palace. But it'll be a, it'll be a difficult game. And I'm with you. I mean, it, that's going to be the constant concern right the way through the first half of the season is, is you know, the one defeat becoming two, two defeats potentially becoming three and, and bad form creeping in. But in a lot of ways, that's the Premier League, isn't it? That's what you've got to avoid in order to stay up and, and to be comfortable. And and again, it, it just it just didn't feel like panic stations on Monday night. It was a bad evening, but it was a bad evening in weird conditions and, and against a very good Leicester side. I think I was a week ago, I would have not been too worried about this game, but I see I do see certain parallels there with Leicester in that they've they're a team that will catch us on the break with with Zaha, and I know he's he's a very different type of player to Vardy. He's not quite as instinctive, and he's not an out and out goal scorer in the same way. But I do have some concerns about them catching us on the break, and I I see them as a team that won't feel the pressure to attack us, and they they will be quite happy to sit off and let us have seventy percent possession despite being at home in this one. So I I do have some concerns, I have to say. No, I, I agree with that, and I think. There's no compunction on Hodgson's part to go looking for the ball or to feel like he, he's got to entertain. He is very pragmatic and I know he gets criticised for that, but in the main, you know, for Palace, it, it works in as much as it keeps them out of trouble and it, it keeps them up and it keeps them ticking over. And I don't think he has a squad that 
could I, I think he has a squad that can do well in the league, but not well in the sense of really getting the mix for for European qualification or major trophies. And um, but that definitely is where you expect them to hurt Leeds if they do. Zaha in particular, and he isn't the same as Vardy, and he doesn't score at the same rate as Vardy, and he isn't dangerous in in quite the same positions that that Vardy is. But if he gets the run on you, and if if he gets loose, then he opens everything up, and he can cause absolute chaos. Just considering the different styles of play, who do you think has got the better squad there? Because what Hodgson would do with the Leeds squad and what Bielsa would do with the Palace squad are, are entirely different things. But it's, I'm just interested to know what you think is actually the, the stronger team there. I think they're relatively on a par. I, I suspect Leeds have got the potential to be stronger because it all feels it, it always feels very productive under Bielsa and everybody seems so tuned into his tactics and the tactics are more ambitious and they are more attacking. And I think when you have Rodrigo involved and Rafina and others, you have the potential to be a dangerous side consistently, whereas what you, you find with Palace is that they have days where they look very good and, and days where somebody like Zaha will, will run riot. But they equally have days where the tactics seem to to make them very limited and very unambitious. I think there are plenty of players in the Palace squad that Bielsa could do good things with, Zaha being one. And, and I, I suspect that Hodgson would like a lot of what he sees in, in the Leeds squad too. But I, I very much feel that the squad at Leeds is set up for Bielsa in the way that the, the one at Palace is for Hodgson. We were rumoured to be in for Eze at QPR. Did he go to Palace in the end? I, do, I lose track of it all. He is at Palace um, and is, to my mind, a, a really good player. That never seemed to get going on the Leeds front, but he would certainly have been a player if, if Leeds had dipped into the Championship as, as heavily as we thought they would to begin with. He would have been a player that I'd have been very interested in them getting hold of. Really talented, um, really good in, in that deep lying forward position, central role where he can pick passes, he can run, he, he can look for possession. He's another one in amongst Townsend and, and Zaha and others that they'll have to be careful with. It's difficult to know what lineup um, Hodgson will go with, but you know that he'll that despite the fact that Palace might play deep and and might be willing to concede a greater share of possession, you know that he'll leave players at the top end of the team who will win the game for them if they get the chance. Do you know if they do they tend to play sort of two up front because that alters the dynamic when it comes to Leeds playing, doesn't it? Like a lot of sides, they, they they can mix it up a little bit, and and that's the you know that's the advantage that he that Hodgson has of the attacking players in his side. I suspect it'll be one up top rather than two. Um, although you know what it's like with Bielsa, he's always ready to adapt. Um, and and will automatically go three at the back if it's two up top, four at the back if if it's one up top. I I think though the the key for him is going to be the use of for Bielsa is going to be the use of possession and what Leeds do with it. And and I do think that the wide areas for Leeds are, are where the certainly in, in Palace's in Palace's half of the field is where the game's going to be won if they're going to win it. That that is the area where they've got to do a huge amount of damage. Harrison on one side, Costa on the other. And and it's possible that Rafina will be involved because he um he'll have a fitness test on Friday, Bielsa will make a, a decision, but it sounded like he he was getting pretty close. It does make sense then, doesn't it, to maybe go for striking central midfield um, in the deep line role because then he can just drop back in rather than click because if you suddenly find yourself needing to drop three into into defence you don't want click all the way back there do you you want him able further up the field where he's more effective well the one thing they're very good at doing when they have Phillips um, in, in the team is to commit players forward so five or six but to stick with that back three two centre backs and, and Phillips who are always in position to cover whenever a team breaks on them and, and you know that's what Palace will try to do they'll try to set um, Zaha loose and I think you do want somebody like Strike there who will constantly be looking for those runs out wide and constantly looking for those moments of danger when Palace spring the trap and 
and try to to go from deep. That's certainly what Phillips would be thinking about um, going to Palace when he's out of possession is where are Palace on the pitch? What are they trying to do? Where are the gaps and, and what do I need to cover? And it, it'll be it'll be a very, very big game for the two centre-halves and, and for whoever plays in front of them who, like you, I, I think will be strike. With Rodrigo definitely out then, was there any indication that Gelhart might be getting a look in at some point? He was asked about him, but didn't really commit. It, Gilhart must be as close as most of the 23s, I would think, to that point. It's a shame this season. Leeds wanted the, the 20-man squads that were there post-lockdown um, last season to stay in place. They they were in favour of three subs per game as opposed to five, which I know others like Guardiola favoured, but, but Leeds went well, one of the teams who, who voted for three. But it, had they had a, a squad of 20, I think there would have been more chance for guys like Gilhart, for, for Greenwood, for others to have slipped into the into onto the bench and, and to have been in amongst the substitutes. Because of the way it is and because we're still on eighteen man squads, if you take the team that was there on Monday night and then you add to it Rodrigo, Rafina, Urente, Phillips, you've got Tyler Roberts, um you've got Stroik who's on the bench, you've got a sub goalkeeper in Casilla, it doesn't leave a lot of space and Bielsa likes to to kind of split it up with two defensive players, two midfield players, two attacking players. I would suspect we'll have to wait a while longer to see Gelhart and it might be more difficult for him to, to push his way in this season not because he isn't worth it but because there are other players in front of him who are who are clogging up um, the bench but he, he's he been hugely impressive in the 23s every time I see him he, he looks like a, a massively talented player and, and Leeds have been quite honest in saying that the money they paid for him around uh, about £700,000 up front from what I was told um, is a small fee for somebody with massive amounts of talent and the only reason that they were ever able to get involved at that level of valuation was purely because Wigan were in deep trouble and Wigan were in administration he is by you know in in the opinion of most people worth more money than that so Gerald Krasner actually did us a bit of a solid there by selling us Gelhart so cheaply and and actually we've been on the receiving end of this before on the other side of this equation and it's not nice having your players plundered so I do understand that no absolutely and Wigan needed the money so I think you know, they they have to be kind of pragmatic about that and say it did pulling cash at a point where they needed it. But I don't think if Wigan were in fine fettle and strong position in the championship and everything else, they'd have been selling Gelhard for anything like that. Where's Gelhard going to fit into the team if he does come in? Because he seems to play up front for the under-23s, but a bit withdrawn and Greenwood plays further forward. Do you see, would he be in a number 10 role, do you think? He looks like he could play in either, and I guess it would depend entirely on what, what Bielsa needed on every given day. The same way as Rodrigo. I think when Rodrigo came over, a lot of us wondered if... I think we all expected Bamford to start, and, and we're pretty certain that, that Bielsa would commit to, to playing Bamford in the first game at, at Anfield and, and beyond. But it was that kind of feeling that Rodrigo ultimately was probably going to be number nine further down the line in the way that he's number nine for Spain. But as it goes on, you st- and, and as you see more of him and the, the connection with Bamford in front of him and other players round about, you, you get the feeling that actually Rodrigo at 10 is a is a very good move. And I think the same would apply with Gilhart. He, he's such a good finisher and such a good goal scorer that you I think you could play him up front in the Bamford role. But then he, he has the talent to play as a 10 as well, to play in a more withdrawn role. So it just, again, falls into the sort of versatility mould, doesn't it? Depending on what Bielsa needs on, on every any given night, he's got Gilhart that he can he can mould and, and use in, in whatever role he's called for. Just thinking about the international window, 
if there is a, a small blessing in disguise with Rodrigo um, getting COVID, it's that he doesn't go away and we don't risk another injury. And obviously, Llorente's coming back from an injury. Only Tyler Roberts that we're aware of is, is going away at the minute. Do we know yet about Phillips for England? Um, obviously, da- he's going to be out, isn't he? Uh, Phillips, yeah. Phillips will be out. Dallas has got um, Northern Ireland games coming up. It's kind of a necessary evil for a Premier League club is that you sign players who are going to be of international level. Urente isn't fit for this weekend, so I don't think any prospect at all of him going away with, with Spain. Given that Rodrigo is recovering from COVID, I think um, likewise it, it would make no sense for him to travel and, and I don't think he will. It's funny really, isn't it? Because I, I was looking back earlier this week and by this stage last season, Leeds have played, I think, 17 games between the League and the League Cup. At the moment, they've played all of eight between the Carabao Cup and seven in the Premier League. So in physical terms, the games themselves are not asking anywhere near as much of the squad as the games in the Championship did last season. So you would assume that international duty isn't too much of a problem, even though it it means travelling away and and it means intensity of, of games in a period when you'd otherwise be resting. But clearly, from the last international break, there was the issue with Cooper, there was the issue with... Urente Phillips has injured his shoulder, which is nothing to do with that. It was just a, an awkward fall with that push from from Jimenez in his back. But when the injuries start to mount up, um, you do get the, that kind of twitch when the international games come round. Thinking, do you know what? It would be better if the players were here and, and out of harm's way. But to be quite honest, I don't think many of the players who who have international prospects would want that to be the case. Have we had any indication on on Forshaw's whereabouts? Because we we always hear that he's close. He's close. He's close. And He's been close for more than a year now. He, he hasn't been asked the last few weeks, Bielsa, and I think that's because he said, "Look, when, when he, you know, when he gets back to full training and everything else, we're going to put him through twenty threes games, and probably I think Bielsa said four or five, which is a long stretch, and is going to take him past Christmas if that's actually the the way it goes." There was, I think, some footage earlier this week of Forshaw back out and and working and everything else, but the club and Bielsa in particular, and Bielsa is the crucial person in this because. Forshaw is only ready to play when Bielsa decides that he's ready to play and you can have time skills and you can have projections and, and everything else but it all comes down to how fit Bielsa thinks he is how Bielsa thinks he's performing in motherball and, and training in general and you will only know that Forshaw's ready when Bielsa says he is and when Bielsa brings him back into his 80-man squad but if that projection of needing multiple 23s games was right then I think we're looking at a while longer before he's properly involved. Back to Palace then. Michael, what did you predict on the Square Ball podcast for this one? I can't remember. I can't remember either. I think it changes. Um, <laughs> Depending on your state of mind. Yeah, I was optimistic for Leicester, so I think it's probably only right that I think we're going to lose 1-0. We'll have loads of possession, loads of shots. They'll have one shot and it goes in. The miserablest. What about you, <laughs> Phil? What you got? I didn't fancy Leeds to win particularly against Leicester. I thought that would be a draw and actually I think it still could have been a, a Leeds taking advantage of that period in the second half. I kind of fancy them to nick this. I do fancy them to nick it down at Sellers Park. I think it'll be a really, really close game. I don't think there'll be there'll be much in it. But I think they'll be a little wiser for the games against Wolves and, and Leicester on Monday. They've got to keep Zaha quiet or relatively quiet. But I think I think if they do they can nick a two one win down there. And the man to man system does it's quite good at cancelling out flair players. Um, we f- we forget sometimes that we're good and we're good at that when it works. It's a risk, isn't it? Because people who watch it and aren't used to man marking because man marking is quite out of fashion. So people expect it to be zonal and and don't expect you to go chase it. You know, they, when they see Robin Cock or Cooper come to the halfway line chasing Firmino or somebody else, it's a little bit baffling because that just doesn't happen anymore. But it's been Bielsa's way at Leeds right from the start, so the players understand it and the players are comfortable with it. When it works, it's really good because. 
as you saw at Liverpool, you had Firmino dropping deep and you were expecting, because of that, Liverpool to have the, the opportunity to play Manny or, or Salah into the middle where there would be a gap. But because the fullbacks go with them, it's nowhere near as easy to get on the ball and it's nowhere near as easy to exploit that area. Whereas if you're marking zonally and you drag somebody out of position, you, you can do damage. The problem comes when it doesn't work and you find that players are out of position um, and, and are being dragged around. And there was a little bit of that on Monday night that, that Vardy was very good at, at exploiting. But it's like the tactics themselves, isn't it? They're never going to change with BLC. He's not going to shift drastically from them. And it and it kind of is what it is. But whoever has the job of marking Zaha on, um, on Saturday is going to have fun and games with that. So, Michael, you're too terrified to predict a win. Phil, you've said Leeds will nick it. I'm going to try and remain positive to counterbalance the universe then against Michael and say, I fancy us for this one as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. Comfortable win, this one. Optimism, like it. And I prepare for all the egg on my face um, <laughs> in another seven days or thereabouts. So let's wrap it up then with one to watch using your, your powers of prediction, who or what are we looking out for versus Palace, the issue, the person, the player. I would look out for the touchline on Saturday. You've got two managers who between them have got, well, one is 73, one is 65. So if my maths are correct, that's 138 years between them. Fist fight, you're saying? <laughs> yeah, why not? But it's it it's pretty amazing really to think that they're still going in, in the way that they are. And, you know, like both of them, Hodgson included, strike me as people who just can't leave the game behind and will struggle to leave the game behind and will, I guess, at, at some stage get to the point where nobody wants to employ them anymore. But I think we'd find it hard to, to make the decision themselves. And that famous game down at Swansea where Hernandez scored and Leeds pretty much wrapped up the um, promotion from the championship, I, I did a piece watching Bielsa all game and I cannot believe at 65 the energy and the intensity that he puts into managing a game from the touchline which I'm sure will be replicated during training through the week as well and you sort of wonder how his body takes it you know how does his body cope with that Hodgson's different Hodgson is more reserved doesn't kill himself in in that sense but when we we were at Villa and Leeds were 3-0 up and there was that famous picture of seven Leeds players attacking Villa's box seven on four in the 95th minute Bielsa was going at them in injury time as if they were 2-1 down and he was he was wanting to nick a point. You know, he was his face was it, it was fixed in the way that it would have been in the first minute. He was he was barking away, he was shouting every time they, they lost the ball. And I tweeted and said it's kind of deck chair time this, you know. You you could sit back and, and have a pint because this is in the bag. But the energy's still there and the intensity's still there. And I do think, you know, it, it's not that you, you know, a lot of people in football are ageless and a lot of people stick with it for, for a long time. But the two of them right at the at you know, very or very close to the top of the game at, at 73 in Hodgson's case and 65 in, in Bielsa's case is absolutely astonishing and you should keep an eye on it because it won't happen very often. There speaks a man who's just turned 40 as well. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Phil. Thank you, Michael. We are back next week with more of the same and if you want to catch up with Phil's stuff, including that article that we mentioned about Pablo Hernandez, the deep dive on him, find it on The Athletic. You can subscribe for a limited time for a pound a week, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll speak to you next time. The Phil Hay Show. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.